Hello and welcome to Nudge, the podcast dedicated to understanding why we humans behave the way we do. When was the last time you saw an advertisement for YouTube, for Twitter or for Instagram? Chances are you haven't. Yet these are some of the most successful companies in the world, pulling in billions of users to their products every single day. So how do they do it without spending millions on traditional advertising? The apps these companies designed are deeply entwined with our everyday habits. Every morning, 79% of us check our phones within 15 minutes of waking up. Chances are the first thing we look at are Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram. These products have created such deep habits within us that we use them as soon as we wake up, as soon as we feel bored, as soon as we see something interesting, and right before we head back to sleep. They're incredibly good at capturing our attention without even paying a penny on marketing. The question is, how do they do it? The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. My guest today is Nia Ayo. After starting two tech companies, he started to wonder what differentiated brilliant products that keep drawing us back in from the average products that we put down after using. After spending years studying the subject and eventually teaching at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, he wrote the now best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. In the book, he explains the key traits a product needs to hook customers in. He calls it the hook model. Here's near introducing the model. So the hook model starts with a trigger to an action to a variable reward, and finally an investment. And it's through successive cycles through these hooks that customer preferences are shaped, that our tastes are formed, and that our habits take hold. And uh, the, the idea behind the hook model is, is, is not uh, you know, groundbreaking new research. Everything in the hook model comes from decades-old research. We're talking operant conditioning and Albert Bandura. And the difference is that we can use this model to build the kind of products and services that can form healthy habits in users' lives. Uh, so the idea here is that you know, we, we can learn from 
the most engaging products out there, which is, and they were kind of my case study, you know, the, the, the Facebooks and Googles and Instagrams and WhatsApp, <laughs> these, these kind of products that are so engaging, uh, games as well. And the idea was to boil down the essence of, of how these experiences are designed to form uh, user habits. Because, you know, the vast majority of products out there don't suck us in, not in the way that, uh, you know, Facebook or a game might suck us in. No, most products and services out there suck. <laughs> they don't suck us in at all. And so the idea is why can't we democratize some of these techniques to help customers and users form healthy habits with our product and service? Uh, so that's really what the hook model is all about. So the hook model starts with a, an external trigger. So this will be a ping or ding, something in your environment that tells you what to, to do next through the action phase, which is the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. So it can be something as simple as scrolling a feed or pushing the plate button on a video or uh, looking at a dashboard, anything you know, very, very quickly that gets you to the reward. The reward typically has some kind of variability. Uh, this is, of course, called intermittent reinforcement, where there's some kind of uncertainty uh, to what you might find. That's what you find at the core of all sorts of engaging experiences. And so what we want to do is to give the user what they came for to scratch their itch and yet have a bit of mystery, a bit of uncertainty around what they might find the next time they engage with us. And then finally, perhaps the most overlooked of the four steps of the hook model is the investment phase. And the investment phase is where the user puts something into the product, some kind of data, content, followers, reputation, skill, something they put into the product to improve the product with use. Uh, and so through successive cycles through these hooks, what we find is that over time, by passing through trigger action reward investment, the user begins to associate the use of the product with what's called an internal trigger. So some kind of uncomfortable emotional state as opposed to needing a ping, ding, a ring, uh, an external trigger, they are prompted not by those things in their environment, but in fact by what's going on inside of them. So when they're feeling lonely, they check Facebook. When they're uncertain, they Google. When they're bored, they check the news, stock prices, sports scores, any number of different services to cater to this internal trigger. And that's really the, the holy grail of a habit-forming product is when the user is using it on their own. They're, tr in, they're triggered internally as opposed to needing any kind of spammy marketing or messaging or reminders. Uh, they, they use the product on their own habitually. And so that's, that's the hook model in short. The hook model is a fundamental framework that products must have in order to become habit-forming. And habits aren't just nice to have goals for most products. They are vital for product success. Habit-formed products increase customer lifetime value, they provide pricing flexibility and also increase growth. But importantly, they remove any competitive threats. Once you're hooked on a product, it's very difficult to swap it for a competitor, even if that competitor is better. Take the QWERTY keyboard. It was developed way back in the 1870s and is by no means the best position of letters on a keyboard. In the 60s, a group of developers studied typing combinations and developed a far better keyboard which placed vowels on the centre row. This keyboard was easier to write on, it reduced strain to the hands, and even increased typing speed and accuracy. But as you already know, absolutely no one uses it. Why? Because we're all hooked on the QWERTY design. So back to Nir. He went on to explain how the best companies build products with our motivations in mind by thinking about customers and their internal triggers. So the idea here 
is to first start with the internal trigger. That's what we want to start at the end in a way, because the ultimate goal again is to create an association with the internal trigger so that the customer or user triggers themselves. And so that means we have to start with what is the customer's pain point? What's the frequently occurring itch that they use our product to scratch? And so once we know that, then we can just design the external trigger. And this is a, a, departure from I think most companies do. Most companies say, well, let's just bombard them with lots and lots of messaging. And eventually, you know, we'll work the law of of big numbers and we'll catch a few fish. (laughs) And that's not the right way to do things. What we want to do instead is to realize that the difference between a notification, an external trigger that feels like spam and one that feels like magic is one word. And that one word is context. And to illustrate the point, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I was on a transcon flight and uh, this gentleman was in the aisle and he was sitting across from me and he was clearly sleeping and he had his, his blanket pulled up to his chin. He had a big pillow under, uh, under his head. He was clearly unconscious. And the flight attendant comes by and says to him, sir, and he doesn't wake up. Obviously he's sleeping. And so she says it a little louder. She says, sir, and he still doesn't wake up. Finally, she kind of screams at him. She says, sir. And he, he wakes up. He says, what, what, what is it? What is it? And she says, what would you like to drink, sir? And so this is an example of how we act to our customers all the time. Did did this gentleman want a drink? Of course he wanted a drink, but not now when he's sleeping, when he's thirsty. And when we send people the external triggers, the dings, the pings, the rings, the emails, the notifications on our schedule as opposed to their schedule, we shouldn't be surprised when they hate us and call us spammers. Uh, just as annoying as that flight attendant was to this to this man who was sleeping. The right time should have been when he had the internal trigger of thirst, not when it was convenient for her to interrupt him while he was sleeping. So the, the rule for sending external triggers that are welcomed by our customers and users, as opposed to the ones that, that make them want to uninstall our app or discontinue use of our service, is to always consider the context. We want to send the external trigger the moment the user feels the internal trigger. The closer we can get those two things together, the moment the user feels the internal trigger, they should immediately, as close as possible, get the, the external trigger that sends them a solution to the problem they're feeling. Uh, and so that's, that's the most effective way to send these external triggers is to start by considering what is the internal trigger that our product is solving for the customer. When building a product, marketing a service, or even when serving customers on a plane, you have to consider their internal triggers. This isn't just an old wives' tale, there's science that backs it up. Yahoo recruited 600 adults to fill in a week-long smartphone diary that tracked their moods. It revealed that when customers were upbeat, they were 24% more receptive to external triggers, essentially 24% more receptive to ads, notifications or anything that buzzed on their phone. Essentially, our internal thoughts and feelings heavily determine whether we view a product in a favourable or negative light. And this is what the world's best products build upon. Now when we feel stressed about missing a moment, we record it on our Instagram story. When we feel a pang of boredom, we scroll through Instagram Explore. And when we feel lonely, we maybe check RX's profile. These companies aren't successful because their products are faster, slicker, or even better. They're successful because they build on our motivations. It's important that we understand uh, the nature of human motivation. A lot of people will tell you that motivation is about carrots and sticks. 
Uh, it's some version of Freud's pleasure principle that everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And it turns out it's actually simpler than that, that in fact, it's not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It turns out it's pain all the way down. That all human behavior is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort. Even the pursuit of a pleasurable sensation. Remember, the brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. It's only through a memory of a pleasurable sensation that the brain creates discomfort. That's when the brain elicits a, a, a pain response, an uncomfortable sensation of some sort that prompts us to action. So even wanting to feel good, uh, desire, craving, you know, there's a reason we say love hurts. It does, neurologically speaking, uh, that is what drives us to action. And so where we have to start when it comes to designing products and services for our customers is always with that uncomfortable emotional state. What is the feeling that our customer is trying to escape with our product? Now, people say, well, what about good sensations, right? What if our customers want to connect or share or whatever? No, stop thinking that way. If you do that, you are the flight attendant. If the customer is not in pain, leave them the hell alone. It's only when a customer is feeling discomfort, they need our product. That's our job. You know, the beauty of what we do as marketers, as product designers, as builders, we fix people's problems. But if there's no problem, leave them the hell alone, like that flight attendant, right? Only look for the pain. Uh, that, is, that is where we should start. If you tried to write a blog in the early 2000s, you would have felt a lot of pain. There was no simple way to set a blog up and no easy way to get an RSS feed up and running. Without understanding how to code, you had no chance of publishing a blog online. The product Blogger removed this pain simply by automating the process for you. It became incredibly popular, becoming one of the most visited sites on the web and eventually being acquired by Google, not by doing anything particularly smart, just by removing the pain behind blogging. Pain can be measured as well. An 8 millisecond decrease in Google speeds results in 10 million fewer searches by users. And a 1 second delay in Walmart's checkout loading time resulted in 2% of customers dropping off and not buying anything. Which, for the world's largest retailer, literally meant they were losing millions of dollars every week. Even though the pain of waiting literally less than a second is small, it changes a bunch of our actions. This is why Apple make it simple and quick to access your camera on your phone by swiping left, and why Tinder make it quick and easy to swipe through potential suitors. It's also the same reason why the most successful news sites use infinite scroll, because it's easier to keep scrolling rather than clicking to see content. And once you've satisfied this painful feeling, you'll get a consumer to achieve an action. But to keep them coming back, to get them hooked, you need variable rewards. I asked Nir to explain the 1950s study on pigeons, which helped us understand the power of variable rewards. Yeah, so this comes out of the fascinating work of, of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. And uh, this occurred back in the 1950s, and Skinner took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a disc to peck at. And every time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. And at first, Skinner could train these pigeons to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry. Okay, so by the way, notice the experiment did not work if the pigeons were not hungry. Why? No internal trigger. Uh, what Skinner discovered was as long as the pigeon had the internal trigger, he could train them to peck at the disc whenever they were hungry uh, by giving them a reward every time they pecked at the disc. Great. That's called operant conditioning. Got it. Uh, 
This is how we train puppies. This is how we train small children. Not too different. But then Skinner ran out of these food pellets. He didn't have enough one day. And so he couldn't afford to give a food pellet to the pigeon every time. He could only give it to the pigeon every once in a while. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc. No reward. No food pellet. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And so this is the exact same mechanic that makes all sorts of things highly engaging. It's what makes gambling interesting. It's what makes a movie fun to watch. It's what makes for a great book, television show, the news, romance. All of these things are fun because of variability. The amount the pigeon pecked at the disc increased when the rewards were variable, which is kind of weird. Studies have shown that the exact same behavior occurs in humans. If you randomly give someone a chocolate for pressing a button, they'll be more likely to continue pressing it than if you just gave someone a chocolate every time they pressed the button. I went on to ask Nir how products use these variable rewards in three unique ways to hook users in. So there's three types of variable rewards, rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. Rewards of the tribe are these variable rewards that come from other people. Uh, so it's, it's all about uh, you know, social validation. It's about being a member of the community. It's this uncertainty. So for example, when you use Stack Overflow, this is the world's largest uh, technical question and answer site. 5,000 questions get answered every single day. No money is, is changed hands, right? Why? This is dec- technical documentation. Why do people spend hours filling out these very complicated questions for the benefit of others when they don't get any personal reward from it. There's no money changed hands. Well, it turns out when you submit an answer on Stack Overflow, your answer is either upvoted or downvoted. And so there's this social reward mechanic of what do members of my community think of my contribution? Do they like it? Do they not like it? And there's uncertainty there around what you might get when you submit an answer. And so many people you know, really enjoy this idea of contributing to the tribe. It's very reinforcing for folks to know that they are helping fellow members of, of their community. Uh, so those are rewards of the tribe. Then you have rewards of the hunt. Rewards of the hunt are all about the search for material possessions, so money in modern society, or information rewards. Uh, so scrolling and scrolling, looking for interesting information on the, the New York Times or The Guardian or whatever, that's all about our primal hunt for the same type of variable rewards. There's a reason that some people are called news junkies because the news can be very intoxicating and some people can actually overuse, if not abuse, too much news because it can be just as addictive as a slot machine. The, you know, the good old newspaper or you know, the television news can be highly addictive to some people, of course. The last type of variable reward is called rewards of the self. So these are things that feel good, that have this element of variability, but don't come from other people and aren't about the search for information or material rewards. These are things that feel good in and of themselves. They're intrinsically pleasurable. So this comes out of the work of, of, uh, of self-determination theory, Desi and Ryan, uh, where, where what they found is that you know, what, what feels good to us is this sense of competency, autonomy, uh, and mastery. And, and uh, sorry, relatedness, uh, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And so when you find any kind of reward that gives us a sense of achievement, accomplishment, that's where you see these rewards of, of the self. Uh, so if you think about 
you know, your to-do list. That feels good to tick off those items in your to-do list. Uh, your e- email inbox, you know, it feels good to, to master that email inbox in the very same way that it might feel good in a, in a video game to get to the next level, the next accomplishment, the next achievement. Neil writes in his book that we'll never get addicted to opening an empty fridge because there's no variability. You open it, the light turns on, and that's it. But opening a stacked fridge when somebody else has done the shopping is something we all get hooked on because of the potential rewards. The food to eat is variable and it constantly changes. What's interesting though is the more times you go through the hook cycle and the more you invest in a product, the more addictive they become. It's self-fulfilling. This is what Nia calls the investment phase. So the investment phase comes after the variable reward phase, the last step of the hook. And this is where the user puts something into the product to improve the product with use, as we talked about earlier. It stores some kind of value and it loads the next trigger. So stored value is, is a really big deal. Uh, you know, Stored value, if you think about products that are made out of atoms as opposed to products that are made out of bits, products made out of atoms that we use in the physical world, they depreciate, they lose value with time, right? So the more wear and tear from your table, your desk, your clothing, anything in the physical world depreciates. Habit forming products in the virtual world. So when it comes to these online products, they can do something amazing. They can appreciate in value. That's incredible. They get more valuable the more you use them. And they do this because of the user investment of data, content, followers, reputation, all of these things improve the product the more you use them. And many of these, you know, if you think about reputation, if you think about Airbnb or eBay, many of these things, you know, you, you, you find it difficult to leave the, the use of the product because you stored so much value in the form of your reputation. Uh, so that's, that's a very important step. Find some, a way to increase the product's value with use and load the next trigger. So every time, if you think about uh, on WhatsApp or Slack or any number of other messaging services, when you send someone a message, there's no immediate gratification. What you're doing is you're loading the next trigger because you're likely to get a reply. And that reply comes coupled with an external trigger that prompts you through the hook once again. So that's the main role of these investments. They store value, they make the product better with use, and they load the next trigger to send the, the user through the hook cycle once again. The investment phase is dependent on the consistency theory, which is something we've talked a lot about on previous episodes on Nudge. Essentially, we like to be consistent with our previous actions. So if we Instagrammed our last home-cooked meal, we'll likely think about doing the same thing when we finish our next meal. But the investment phase doesn't just increase our use of a product or object, it actually increases our value of it. In a 2011 study, Dan Ariely gave U.S. college students instructions to assemble an origami crane. After, the students were asked how much they'd like to pay to purchase their creations. Meanwhile, another separate group was asked to bid on the same origami, only this origami was pre-created by a professional. The study revealed that the students who created their own origami valued their creation at five times higher than those who didn't, even though their own creations were significantly worse. LinkedIn quantified the value of investment in their product. They noticed that users who took effort to fill out their experience and education on their profile were seven times more likely to respond to external triggers like emails and come back and use the product. 
Getting your users to invest just a little bit in your product dramatically increases the chances that they'll come back and complete that whole hook cycle again. Hopefully some of you are listening to this and asking, is this all ethical? Should product designers, product marketers and some of the world's largest companies, should they use this behavioural science findings to get us addicted to their tech? It's a fascinating question that Nier attempts to answer. He states that there's a simple framework to follow. You ask two questions. Would the user benefit? And would you, the maker, use it? If the answer to both of those is no, then you shouldn't make it. It's unethical. But that hasn't stopped us getting addicted to our phones, to waking up and immediately checking our notifications. So in the next episode, I'm talking to Nier again. But this time, we're talking about tactics we can all use to stop us getting distracted by this tech. We'll cover how the best companies have created distraction-free workplaces and how the best parents raise a kid in a tech-heavy world. If you want to make sure you don't miss that episode, then sign up to our mailing list, the list to which is in the show notes. And if you'd like to find out more about the Hook model, give Nir's book a read. It's currently less than a tenner on Amazon, so click the links on the show notes to pick a copy up. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Nudge.